0: If you've got a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 26 this morning, and we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this amazing uh, account of church history and of the Apostle Paul, as we have been in uh, chapter 25 last time we were together, and this morning we'll be in chapter 26, verses 1 through 18. And I've given a title to the message, which is just simply, Resurrection Truth Radically Transforms. Resurrection truth radically transforms. We're in Acts chapter 26, and we'll look at verses 1 through 18 together this morning. Let me read the text, and then we'll jump into our time together. It says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate, that is, before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent near, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to read our text this morning. I pray as we dive in to this transforming work of the cross and the life and testimony of the Apostle Paul, that we too this morning would seek that, that same tra- transformation and that same radical difference would be alive in us today as we want to testify without shame and without fear about the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so be exalted in our time, in your word we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the proof of Christianity lies in its power. And only the power of Christ can take men and women who are lost in the darkness of this world and make them sons and daughters of the King. There is no depth of guilt to which someone could plummet or degree of humiliation which someone can feel that puts them beyond the reach of God's forgiving grace. And as he concludes a long, ugly list of sins, as you remember from 1 Corinthians 6, Paul states, such were some of you. And I love that statement, such were some of you after this long list of ugly sins. And this statement is a statement of forgiveness. It's a statement of triumph over sin. It's in the past tense, such were some of you, but now you've been made new, right? Now we're different because of the transforming work of the gospel. Now, no man can change himself and no woman can change herself, but Jesus can change them. If left to our own demises, we would never be able to change. That's why Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Answer, no, you can't change the color of your skin. Or can the leopard change his spots? And the answer is no, a leopard can't change their spots. And so those verses are just reminding us that we cannot change on our own. But Jesus can change anybody, and he does And he does that work from the inside out. And that's why Paul writes at the end of Romans 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in our passage today, Paul's testimony is going to talk about his transformation How it seemed like he would never change and just be the same old, same old Paul persecuting Christians, and now he's just radically different. And in a passage, in this passage, Paul really is highlighting two main themes. Number one, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. And then number two, we're going to see that that resurrection radically transformed the life of Paul. Or to say it another way, Jesus Christ's resurrection proves that he is indeed the Messiah. And Paul's transformation proves the radical impact of Christ's resurrection. And Paul masterfully weaves this truth of the saving gospel throughout his firsthand account. I mean, think about it. In order to prove something in the world, you have to kind of use what oftentimes is alluded to as the scientific method starting with a hypothesis and then a theory, and then if something is proven, maybe it becomes a fact. You know, a hypothesis is an untested idea. A theory is an idea with the backing of data derived by testing the hypothesis. And a fact is a universal law that can be objectively reproduced, and it is empirical in its nature. But in the world of theology, you have the fact of the resurrection, which no one has to prove and no one can ultimately disprove or deny it because it's been given to us by God. God gave us this this beautiful divine revelation and theological facts are not just philosophical in nature, but they also are practical in, in the real world. I mean, two of the biggest theological facts that demonstrate this would be creation and the cross. So creation is proof that we live in a physical world, and no one can deny that, and it all screams to the glory and majesty of God. And the cross points to the resurrection of Jesus, which is a fact that transforms the physical and the spiritual world. I mean, Jesus was resurrected physically, and then spiritually, this transforms every born-again Christian a radical physical occurrence, the resurrection, then led to a radical spiritual occurrence, the new birth, the transformation that happens in you and in me. And the resurrection is not a hypothesis, and it's not a theory. It is a fact. And after the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15:6 says that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. In Acts 9, the resurrected Savior appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, and this appearance and interaction radically transformed Paul from the inside out. And again, that's what Acts 26 is all about. It's all about Paul's radical transformation because of the cross and because of the resurrection. But my question to you is, what what about you this morning? Do you actually believe in total personal transformation? Do you believe that because of the resurrection, your life has been and is being radically transformed? You may be tempted to think that even if you've been saved, that somehow you must now limp through the rest of your life on crutches because of the consequence of your former sins. Or or maybe you have believed that lie that though you have been saved by grace, you must now work to change yourself in the Christian life. You know, if I just try harder... Well, where did we get those ideas from? I mean, did Jesus tell people, I'll touch your life and change you, but I want you to know that you'll only be changed a little bit? I mean, that now it's all up to you. Is that, is that what Jesus taught? You only change a little bit, and the rest of the change that you want to see take place is up to you. No, no of course he didn't say that. Jesus, in a sense, said, I'll make you brand new from the inside out. To, I'll, I'll liberate you. I'll transform you. I'll change you. That's the message of the cross. And that is what the testimony alludes to that Paul gives here before Agrippa in Acts 26. And to help us see it a little bit better this morning, I'm going to look at five sections of Paul's testimony as he points to the resurrection truth that radically transformed his life. And so we'll see it in these five headings, Paul's complimentary remarks Paul's comprehensive Jewish upbringing, Paul's crushing conviction against Christians, Paul's conversion testimony, and then Paul's commissioning assignment. So let's start with number one this morning, verses one through three, we're looking at Paul's complimentary remarks. And that first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says, the clout of King Agrippa the clout of King Agrippa. So Agrippa said to Paul, verse 1, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. Now by way of reminder of where we are in Acts 26, let me just do a real quick recap. Paul was arrested in Jerusalem at the end of his third missionary journey. Paul was accused of many things, including defiling the temple. And then The Jews desperately wanted to kill Paul on three different occasions. The first was they almost beat him to death when they originally arrested him. The second was that conspiracy that was made where the men swore not to eat or drink until he was going to be killed. And then the third attempt was really after Paul had been taken for safety to Caesarea, the Jews wanted to try him, put him on trial back in Jerusalem But if he came back to Jerusalem, they were planning to kill him along the way. And Paul has now been a prisoner in Caesarea for over two years. He had already been tried by Felix. He was then tried by Festus. And now Paul is going to be brought out to the crowd to give his side of the story to King Agrippa. Now, last time we talked about who this King Agrippa is, remember, this is King Agrippa II. It was his grandfather who was King Agrippa, uh, I'm sorry, his grandfather was King Herod the Great, and he was the one that built the second temple, but he was also the one who tried to kill Jesus as a baby. And then it was King Agrippa's uncle who was King Herod Antipas, and Antipas was the one who worked together with Pilate to actually have Jesus crucified. And then it was King Agrippa's father, King Agrippa I, who was actually struck down because he did not give God glory in Acts 12, 23, and then he was eaten by worms. And so now we have King Agrippa II, who's in our text here of Acts chapter 26, and this King Agrippa II, he actually grew up in Rome, but because of his Jewish heritage, he was still responsible for overseeing the Jewish treasury at the temple and also appointing the high priest. And this King Agrippa that we're looking at this morning is also very corrupt, right? History records that he was actually living in an incestuous relationship with his full sister, Bernice, and he was, for the most part, really a puppet king to give the Jews some type of representation in Rome, and he had no real formal duties in actually ruling over the Jewish people. But he came to pay his respects to to Festus, and so Festus told him about this problem he was having with Paul. King Agrippa said he wanted to hear what he had to say. And so here we are in chapter 26, verse 1, where Agrippa says to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Now remember, Agrippa and Bernice had entered the audience hall that day with great pomp. Right? The text talks about that with fantasia, it's this fantastic expression of outer glory that they had as they put on all their royal splendor, and they were actually escorted into this audience hall by the military guard, and all of the prominent men of the, of the, of the city were there present, and it was at the command of Festus, the true ruling Roman governor, at the, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in but now we see in verse 1, it's at the permission of Agrippa that Paul is now able to speak. And Paul was allowed here to speak for himself. He didn't need any legal representation. He didn't need any human defender. He was fully capable in his own right to speak for himself. And so Paul stretched out his hand and sign of respect and he made his defense. Now that word defense is, a, is one that we know well for those of you who've been studying the Bible for any time, particularly if you've studied apologetics, because the word defense is the word apologia, where we get the word apologetics from. Apologia has nothing to do with making an apology, like I'm sorry for what I did, but rather making a defense, like let me defend the faith. And that's what Paul does here in verse 1. He's ready to make his defense, to defend the faith, to defend the gospel, to defend what he's going to do here in proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he even reminds Agrippa that this is what the Old Testament taught. That the Old Testament taught that there would be a Messiah who would come, and this Messiah would be uh, crucified, and that this Messiah would be resurrected, and that this Messiah would save his people from their sins. Uh, the word apologia may be better even known to us from Peter in his usage in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense, right? Always ready to make a defense for, to anyone who would ask you for the reason of the hope within you and yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's what we see Paul doing in this very text. And if you'll also remember Jesus had said to Ananias that Uh, you know, Jesus uh, told Ananias to go to Paul in order to, you know, pray for him, and the scales fell off his eyes, and then to kind of be the first brother to embrace him and his testimony. And when Jesus told Ananias to go to Paul, he said this, he said, "'Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel.'" And I'm just referencing that from Acts 9.15 because that's exactly what's happening now in Acts 26. Here's Paul fulfilling the prophecy of Jesus. He's before King Agrippa. He's before Gentiles. He's before the Jews who are accusing him. What Jesus had prophesied is now 100% fulfilled in this text that we're reading at this very moment. Now, I want you and I to know that God has also called us to give a defense. He's called us to always be ready. Paul defended himself. He didn't need someone else to do it for him. And you need to be to the point in your own Christian faith and maturity that you would be able to defend the gospel yourself. It's okay to get a little bit of help from a resource or a professor or a pastor. I mean, I called Dr. Barrick last week with some questions I had about something, and he was extremely helpful. And so I'm just saying that while we can always reach out to resources, we still need to be able in our own right to give a defense. And we gotta always be ready, whether we're speaking before kings or peasants, whether speaking before presidents or poor people, whether speaking before celebrities or the common folk. May we always be ready, may we always be unashamed, may we always be filled with the courage that God provides. And, of course, I love what Jesus said in case you're thinking, well, what, what am I going to say in that moment? What if I don't know what to say? Remember, Jesus told his disciples in Luke 12, 11 through 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself. There's the word again. Don't be anxious about how to defend yourself or, or what you should say. Jesus then says, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour, what you ought to say. Have you ever experienced that? You ever been in a situation, a predicament, maybe you're being persecuted, maybe you're witnessing to someone and you're like, uh I don't know what to say. And then all of a sudden there's like a rush of truth that you're reminded of what God's word says just to proclaim the gospel. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit gave you that power and that that clarity to say something that would glorify him. May we depend on the Holy Spirit to, to fill us with that same power and that same wisdom as we proclaim the gospel without fear and without hesitation. And we see in verses 2 through 3, your, your next blank, number 2, the courtesy of the Apostle Paul. Remember, we're supposed to do it with gentleness and respect. And we see Paul put that on display here as he's being courteous. Verses 2 and 3 says, I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So again, this is courtesy here. Paul, Paul didn't say, "Oh no, not you, Agrippa, you pervert." <laughs> is that what he said? He's being nice, and you're like, "Well, how could he be nice? I mean, this guy is living in gross sin." He's denied the gospel. How could he do this? Well, Paul considers himself fortunate. That word there, fortunate, means to be happy or even to be blessed. And you might ask, well, how is Paul happy or fortunate or blessed in this situation? Because the, the reason would be because he's in front of a fellow Jew, and Paul likes to witness to Gentiles, but he also likes to to witness to Jews. And Paul's going to get to make his case because he knows that Agrippa is somewhat acquainted with Jewish culture because of his heritage, and he knows that he's he, he's somewhat going to be a little bit more familiar with with the Judaism that 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 is in the background here. And Paul is kind of refreshed in this opportunity. You know, he he witnessed to Felix and he witnessed to Festus, but now he's got Agrippa, who's a Jew, and he's excited about sharing the gospel with this particular convert. And Paul here, it's important to say, I don't believe he's flattering Agrippa like Festus did, but he's being kind and, and he's being courteous. And Paul also probably thought that because of Agrippa's Roman connections and orientation, having been raised in Rome, he was not likely to be sympathetic to his Jewish accusers. Now, I don't think that Paul really believed Agrippa to be a true expert in Jewish matters, but rather to be familiar with or to be acquainted with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. If you're reading from a NASB Bible, I know it does translate this word as expert, but the ESV translates this word as familiar, and a quick word study here reveals that context is the king to show us should we translate it as expert or familiar. I take the translation familiar here because this word can also mean to have knowledge about, to be acquainted with, or to know about. And however you take this, we certainly know that King Agrippa had not been transformed by his knowledge and therefore was most notably his whatever knowledge he did have was more on the customs and the controversies of the Jews. That's where his knowledge lied, not in the resurrection truth of the gospel or even the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy in the person of Christ. And so by at least having a grasp of the issues, however, Paul saw Agrippa again as a prime candidate to hear Paul's testimony and possibly he would put his faith in the living Christ. And this brings us Now to Paul sharing about his background. Number two, our second major heading, the second section of Paul's testimony is Paul's comprehensive Jewish upbringing. And then in verses four through five, your next blank says he's brought up as a Pharisee. He's brought up as a Pharisee, and this couldn't be more clear in case you forgot. Oh, he actually was a Pharisee before he was a Christian, verses 4 and 5. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. And so here, the primary goal of Paul is not to defend himself. So he's actually not defending himself, he's defending the gospel. If we're not careful, our distraction gets in, we defend ourselves against the attack of our own character. And our main objective has to always be, no, no, I'm defending the character of God's gospel message, not my own personal freedom. And so Paul wasn't there to exonerate himself so much as he was there to convert Agrippa, The apostle, therefore, begged Agrippa to to listen to him patiently. Another sign of his courtesy there. And then, again, Paul's testimony contains two main themes that I mentioned in our introduction. His main emphasis here is going to be that Jesus Christ's resurrection proves him to be the Messiah, and Paul's transformed life proves the radical impact of Christ's resurrection. And to show how startling and complete this divine transformation of his life was, Paul began his testimony by describing his life before his conversion. And so Paul's manner of life from a young age was well known by the Jews, he says. Paul had actually told the crowd earlier in Acts 22, verse 3. He said, I am a Jew born in Tarsus, in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, Jerusalem educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers being zealous for God as all of you are on this day. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I used to be like you. I used to be a Pharisee. I used to ha- I had the same training. In fact, I had even better training than some of you guys. And Paul's zealous application of that strict Jewish law before he was converted, is, it's what led him to actually be the chief persecutor of the Christian faith. And in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it was Paul who approved of Stephen's execution. Remember, they laid their garments at his feet. And Paul approved at that execution, and Paul then began to lead a great persecution against the church of Jerusalem and against, against the Christians who were actually scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. 8-3, Acts 8.3 says that Paul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So the Jewish leaders had known about this. They they had known about Paul's efforts for a long time. And if the Jews were willing to admit it, as he says here, then they knew that Paul's past was filled with that kind of animosity against the church. And they knew that he was committed to the strictest party of their religion, the Pharisees. Josephus described the Pharisees as a certain sect of Jews that appear more religious than others. That's exactly what describes Paul. In fact, when Paul went on to describe his zeal for the law back in Philippians, remember when he wrote to the Philippians in chapter three, verses four through six, he says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, uh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And so Paul is just stressing this point simply to show how lost he was and therefore how remarkable it is that he's now been radically transformed. How can this guy go from being one of them to who he is now? It's an amazing transformation. I mean, Paul wasn't necessarily the most likely of converts. You understand, he had a very strong stance against the gospel and it was public and it was persistent. And yet God, by his grace, divinely revealed himself to Paul through Christ on the road to Damascus. We know about that story as he alludes to it here. So now he's just, again, going back a little bit. I was brought up as a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, he was completely bought into, your next blank, he was bought into the hope of a resurrection. He actually believed in the hope of a resurrection. You say, well, what what do you mean? I thought you said he was lost. He hadn't met Christ yet. Why would he believe in a resurrection? Well, look at verses 6 through 8. He was totally bought into the hope of a resurrection. Verses 6 through 8, we read, And now I stand on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? And so as he had done in his trial before Felix in Acts 24, 14 and 15, Paul is affirming, notice what he's doing, he's affirming his commitment to the teaching of the old testament he did not unhitch the new covenant from the old covenant he is fully bringing his argument out of the Old Testament as it blossoms into what we know as the new covenant. And this is what Paul said earlier in those verses of Acts 24, 14, and 15. He says, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down in the law and written in the prophets. You know what Paul's saying? He's saying, I believe everything about the Old Testament. Every single thing in the law written by Moses, every single thing in the prophets written in the rest of the Old Testament, I believe. And the law and the prophets point to, Acts twenty four fifteen that we ought to have hope in God, which these men themselves accept when there, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So the Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. The Sadducees actually did not. The Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees did believe in a resurrection. And Paul had used that earlier, if you remember, when he was arrested to get the two to argue against each other. But now Paul is doubling down on his hope in the promise that God made to the Jewish fathers. This is exactly what we read even in the New Testament, in the Gospels. This is why Jesus actually quoted from Moses... In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, you remember when Moses was instructed to take off his sandals for he was standing on holy ground and then God said to him, you remember this, this is what God said to Moses in Exodus 3:6. he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Part of the reason God's saying that is he's showing that Judaism started with Abraham, the father of the Jews, moved to Isaac and Jacob, but he says, I am the father, meaning present tense. Here's what I'm getting to. When Jesus quoted Exodus 3.6 and Matthew 22.32, I believe that he's defending the doctrine of the resurrection. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, if Yahweh is truly the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the present, then they must be resurrected in order to receive the promises that he made to them. Realize he made promises to them that they would receive spiritually, even though I believe there's still physical fulfillment of some of the promises that he made to be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. We're still saying that he made promises to them, and the only way that they could have received those promises would have been to have been resurrected and to be in heaven today. To Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still alive today in heaven because of their faith, God-given faith that they had. Likewise, the promises that God made to the Jews demand that they be resurrected one day in order to receive those same promises. This was always Israel's hope and consolation. I mean, we could argue if you want about the land and the millennium and all that. I get that. That's important stuff to talk about. But I'm saying the ultimate hope and consolation of Israel would be that there would be a Messiah and that he would come and that he would save his people from their sins. And the Old Testament saints believed that. And this is what Paul's tapping into. And he's like, look, I'm just teaching the resurrection, which was already taught by our fathers. And now I'm saying it's here. It's here in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter argued in the same way in, in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 11. Peter says this, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So Peter's saying, When the Old Testament prophets talked about the sufferings of Christ, that would be a reference to the crucifixion, and then to the subsequent glories of Christ, that would be a reference to the resurrection. So by doing this, they were actually preaching the good news of the resurrection. So this was a promise made by God throughout the Old Testament, that the Messiah would come to take away sin and to establish his kingdom of righteousness. And it is this very promise to which the 12 tribes, and as how Paul even says, hey, look, the 12 tribes of Israel hope to still attain the resurrection promise. And when he says the 12 tribes of Israel, Paul's also affirming that the 10 northern tribes were not completely lost in the Assyrian evasion of 722 B.C., fact, Matthew 19.28, Luke 22.30, and Revelation 21.12 all point to the fact that the redemption of the 12 tribes of Israel uh, will still happen in the future when, of course, they repent and receive their Messiah. And yet, it was for this hope the same hope of the Old Testament saints that there would be a resurrection from the dead that Paul is now being accused by these apostate Jews. And Paul's saying, this is inconsistent. He's saying, I'm trying to be consistent with the hope of of our fathers by teaching in a resurrection and now I'm being condemned for what our hope has always been in the Jewish people of old had believed. And so Paul is saying now in verse eight, look again at verse eight, he's saying, it's an incredible thought that, 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 that any of you would somehow maybe doubt that God raises the dead. Why, why would you even go there? Why why would any of you go there? I mean, didn't the Jews believe in the miracles performed by God time and time again throughout the Old Testament? I mean, if God could deliver the children of Israel from Egypt and if he could part the Red Sea and if he could do extraordinary miracles like he did through Elijah and Elisha, if he could deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, if he would deliver Daniel from the lion's den, which all the Jews believed in that then certainly God could fulfill his ultimate promise of raising Jesus from the dead. And every time he talked about the resurrection, they're like, Paul, that's ridiculous. Has your learning made you mad? And he's like, no, I'm, I'm just preaching the resurrection. This is what always, it's always been about. Why are you guys doubting, he's saying to his fellow Jews, that God would send a Messiah and then raise him from the dead? This has been prophesied about, as you well know from Isaiah 53. I mean, there's all kinds of texts that clearly point to this. And if he raises Jesus from the dead, then it means that he resurrects every single believer from the dead by believing in Christ. And so by raising Jesus from the dead, God validated the Old Testament promise of the resurrection. And this clearly demonstrates that Jesus is indeed Israel's long-awaited-for Messiah. But it was just at this point that Agrippa, along with many other Jews, was not willing to concede. Most of the Jews, while they might have accepted a general concept of resurrection, they certainly did not accept that Jesus of Nazareth was resurrected and was to be their true Messiah. And if you remember, when confronted with this undeniable fact of Christ's resurrection, the Jewish leaders actually concocted the story that the disciples stole the body. And then they even uh, bribed the Roman guards to, to confirm their lie. And so while Agrippa no doubt accepted maybe the general Jewish belief in the resurrection as all Jews did, he did not accept the resurrection of Christ or his messiahship. And so Paul understood this perfectly and that's why Paul moves next in the next part of his testimony, number three, Paul's crushing conviction against Christians, verses nine through 11. Your next blank says Paul, or excuse me, says convinced in his own mind to oppose the name of Jesus. So he reflects again. This is what he used to do. He, he had opposed earlier the name of Jesus himself. In fact, it says there in verse nine, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, before Paul was saved, he was convinced that he was in the right and the Christians were in the wrong. And Paul had taken personal offense that the Christians might somehow undo his legalistic Judaism. And he couldn't stand their message and he couldn't stand their diversion from what he perceived to be the true faith. And so Paul did what he did out of religious conviction. He, he was a fanatic for pharisaical doctrine. He was an extremist in his actions against those who opposed Judaism. And he was a bloodhound for finding and exposing and persecuting born-again Christians. But after Paul's conversion, he said in 1 Timothy 1.13, "'Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent,' but I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. Paul Paul was actually the most zealous one, blaspheming against Christ, and he was persecuting the church, and he was the worst opponent of Christianity, but God had mercy on his soul. And Paul didn't know what he was up against until God revealed himself to Paul through the confrontation of Jesus on the Damascus Road. So, Paul, again, he's identifying with his audience. I used to be there too. This happened to me. Maybe it'll happen to you. And at this point, Paul, in verses 10 through 11, though still unconverted, he was compelled to fight against the Christians with all of his might. So again, reflecting on the past, he was compelled at that time. Against the Christians with all of his might, verses 10 through 11 says, And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. This is what Paul did in Jerusalem and throughout the region. He had received authority from the Jewish leaders. In fact, this is an interesting note. It may be that one of the Jewish leaders that gave him authority to do this was Agrippa I, King Agrippa II's father. It's very likely that the first was one of the ones that before Paul's conversion had given him permission. Here it mentions that it was certainly the chief priest which gave him that permission to go persecute Christians. And so we read in Acts 9, the chapter about Paul's conversion, verses 1 through 2, it says, "...but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem." This text also says that Paul cast his vote against the Christians. The commentators talk about you could throw a stone. And if you threw in a black stone, it's like you're against it. If you throw in a, a light-colored stone, then it means you're for it. That was one way that they cast their votes in the ancient world. And the reference here about Paul voting might even indicate that he was on the Sanhedrin, that he was one of the 70. who was voting against Christianity and was also voted against uh, even um, uh, against uh, Stephen, who was stoned to death, that he was against these guys that were Christians and he punished them and, and he chased them into the synagogues, he would often seek to torture them, to get them to try to recant, he was trying to get Christians to somehow recant their faith. He, he saw Christians as dangerous heretics and his anger, this text says, grew to raging fury as he chased them even to foreign cities. And it is while he was heading to Damascus for a few more notches in his belt, so to speak, that he was radically transformed. And it changed Paul's life forever. And so the next section of his testimony, number four, his conversion testimony is detailed in verses 12 through 15. This is like the third time he's shared it, so it's giving more in a summary. But he talks about the journey, your next blank, the journey to Damascus, verses 12 and 13. It says, in this connection, the connection of with the chief priest and wanting to persecute the, the believers in Damascus, with this connection I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And so it was was while Paul was engaged in yet another mission to persecute Christians, he was journeying to Damascus, that it happened. And I love the fact that it seems like it was just another day in the life of Paul. You never know when God might convert somebody. It could just be a normal Tuesday. I mean, we don't know what day of the week this was. We just know Paul got up that day probably about the same time he got up on any day. He got dressed that day, probably just like he would have got dressed on any day. He left early that day, like any of us would if we were heading out on a road trip. Just another day in that endeavor to persecute Christians. And at that day, though, there was something radically different. Because at noon, about midday, he saw a light from heaven. This was not the sun, so the sun is bright in the Near East in the Middle East, right? It's not the sun, it's not some meteor, it's not some shooting star. It's a light from heaven. It's not a light from the sky. It's not the brightness of the sun that we read about in the solar eclipse. This is the light of heaven, which is far brighter than the Sun. And at this light it's shown around Paul and those who journeyed with him. and this bright light, certainly would remind us of the transfiguration with Peter, James, and John up on the mount where it says after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, led them to a high mountain by themselves. And then it says, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white as no one on earth could bleach them. Matthew 17 says he was transfigured before them and his his face shone like the sun. That his clothes were white as light. Luke 9 29. And as they were praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Well, Peter, James, and John saw the transfiguration. Now, Paul is seeing a similar brightness of the glorified Christ. We're talking about a, a radiating light, a, a blinding light penetrating light from heaven, the risen Christ in all of his glory, brighter than the sun, brighter than a supernova, brighter than than anything ever created. And then we read in verses 14 through 15 about the jarring interruption from Jesus. The jarring interruption from Jesus, verses 14 and 15. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. So after Paul and his entourage had fallen to the ground, he heard this voice. This voice of the risen, ascended, and glorified Lord Jesus Christ, saying to him in the Hebrew language or dialect, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Which he's making it very clear, Jesus says, that that if you persecute the church, you persecute him. And he also is making it very clear that he is alive. He's very much resurrected. He's very much glorified. And, And his question is, why are you persecuting me? You're, when you persecute the church, you persecute Jesus. And so Jesus is then saying, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. You see it there? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. the end of verse 14. This is new information. This is an additional statement that Paul had not recounted in his other testimony um, disclosures. And so what did Jesus mean when he said, Kicking against the goads. Well, goads were sharp sticks used to prod and direct an animal to go forward. They could be located on the harness or on any piece of, the, of, of wood that would somehow turn into the neck or to the head of the animal. And this way, if an ox or, or a donkey turned to the left or to the right, they would be prodded to go straight instead of side to side. Translation? Paul was kicking against the Lord's discipline and his direction. Paul seems to have been resisting the Lord's leading and the Spirit's clear direction. And this was especially true when Paul ignored Stephen's powerful sermon. And Paul had been trying to resist the effectual call of God. But you can't. No one can resist the will of God. When God effectually calls someone out of darkness into light, God wins. He always prevails. And in this case, God's calling Saul, then who became Paul, out of darkness into light. No man can overcome the sovereign will of God. And so Jesus is essentially saying to him, stop fighting me and submit to me. Stop fighting and start submitting to me. That's what Jesus is saying, and God forbid that we would ever try to do the same. If you're here this morning and you've been trying to fight against the will of God as an unbeliever, you're kicking against the goads. It's futile. You can't win, and I'm calling you this morning to to fight no longer. See the light that's shown on Paul and realize that same light shines from God's word onto your darkened soul this very morning. Fall on your face and repent in dust and in ashes. And if you're here this morning and you are a believer, then I would issue the same challenge to you. That whatever's going on in your life right now, whatever you're dealing with right now, submit to God and follow him. And there could be an area of sin that you need to surrender to Christ. And there could be an area of obedience that, 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 you're, that you're being disobedient. And you need to submit to Christ. There could be an area where you need to follow the calling of God in your life, wherever He's leading you. It could be to go to seminary, it could be to be a missionary, it could be to change jobs or to somehow pour yourself into a more ministry minded lifestyle. Don't resist the calling of God. Paul then asks, Who are you, Lord? To whom again he replies, it's very clear, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Again, maybe Paul at that time thought, Jesus, how could this be? Hadn't Jesus been crucified and buried? Hadn't the disciples stolen his body and laid it in some secret place? How could Jesus be speaking to him now? And then the truth quickly dawned on Paul's soul. Jesus had indeed been buried, but he had been raised from the dead on the third day. And he had ascended back into heaven from where he was now speaking to Paul. And in persecuting the Christians, Paul had been persecuting their master. Paul had been persecuting the Messiah of Israel, the very son of God. And this is what Jesus does though, doesn't he? He stops us in our tracks. He interrupts our human goals. He prevents us from a placid, comfortable, boring life. And he injects life the abundant life. And he injects in us power over sin and purpose to live for eternity and not just to live for your old, boring, temporary life anymore. So let me ask you this morning, has Jesus interrupted your life? And has he turned you around? And has he radically transformed you? If he has, then you can certainly understand our fifth point, number five, Paul's commissioning assignment, because now Jesus wants Paul to get busy in a new direction. And so he first says to him in verse 16, your next blank, rise, rise up on your feet, it says in the beginning of 16, but, but rise and stand up. So here Paul, again, gives a condensed summary of the commission, which was given to him by the risen Christ. He was told by the Lord to rise up and to stand up on his feet and to get going. And it's time to lean in to what I'm saying and engage. And it's time to move forward in repentance and faith. And so Paul had received this special revelation from Jesus because he was to be used mightily by the Lord. The same sort of language was used in calling Ezekiel and Daniel to to rise up and to get on your feet. And this is a time when God appears to us in such a way that knocks us off of our feet And then he raises us up to employ us in his service. And now that God has our full attention, he's pointing us in his direction. And Jesus called Paul to rise up on his feet. And then secondly, be to ready yourself for service. Ready yourself for service. He said, rise up, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. So Jesus here is appointing Paul to be a servant of the Lord and a witness of all he has seen on that day and all of the great Christian truths of the faith that would be revealed to him in the future. And Paul had recounted the same occurrence in this way in Acts twenty-two, fourteen to fifteen. Again, that 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 God had called him and uh, to be a witness to everyone of what he had seen and what he had heard. So, as Paul would be appointed to know God's will and to see the light of Christ and to hear directly from Him, he would be delivered from his people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles to continue his mission and his message to others whom Jesus is sending him to. He's basically saying he's not not finished yet, right? His work is not done. He will go on. He will advance yet still. He will finish the race that God had called him to. And what was it that Paul was to proclaim? Well, a little bit later, according to verse 22, skip down to verse 22, what's he supposed to proclaim? He's supposed to testify of the gospel to both small and great Reminds me of a story I read about, a, about the, the British preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, after he had delivered a sermon to a meeting at Cambridge University. A minister invited some of the students to come over as was the custom to maybe ask the preacher, the guest preacher questions in his home. And so one student was there and he said, I listened to your sermon. He's talking to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He said, I listened to your sermon and I can see how this sort of message appeals to farmers around here, but I fail to see how it's relevant to academics like myself and my colleagues. To this, Lloyd-Jones replied, well, the last time I checked, Cambridge students were made of the same dull clay as the farm workers in the fields. So in other words, we all need to hear this message, right? We all need to hear the message of Christ. And that's what Paul did. He had this conviction to spread the word with the small and the great, with the rich and the poor, with the prince and the pauper. And in verse 18, what Paul's called to, in a sense, is to, your next blank, to reverberate, reverberate the gospel message, verse 18, to open the eyes, open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive the power, uh, uh, they may receive forgiveness of sins and, and place and, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. To reverberate means to make a loud noise. It means to sound off. It means to to be repeated several times as an echo. And so here in verse 18, Jesus gives an excellent summary of what the gospel actually does in the hearts and lives of those who receive it by faith. And so Jesus, I love this verse, Jesus gives us four things that the gospel does. Just yesterday. I was attending the cross-country meet with these guys right here who did a phenomenal job. And you girls right there. Uh, did a phenomenal job. And I was talking to one of the dads and he said, hey, Adam, what are you preaching tomorrow? And I'm like, oh, I'm preaching about uh, Paul giving his defense in front of Agrippa, Acts chapter 26, 1 through 18. He told me, he said, I love 26, 18. And I'm like, how, "How, how come? And he says, because that's what we're praying for. I have an unbelieving son. And we pray this verse over him every day. And I was like, impressed. I'm like, he just knew 2618 like that. Well, here it is. You're about to know it like that. You ready? There's four things that happens that Jesus says will happen to every person who's transformed by the gospel. Number one, the gospel replaces darkness with light. It replaces darkness with light. He says to open their eyes that, may, that they may turn from darkness to light. And so as an apostle, Paul was called to proclaim the good news of salvation to open people's hearts through the word of Jesus Christ and that life-giving message would first open people's eyes. Jesus, as you know, would characterize unbelievers as the blind being led by the blind. But it's got to be the Holy Spirit who uses the word of God to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And it's only through spiritual conviction that life can be transformed as it turns from darkness to light. Like Colossians 1.13 says, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Or Jesus said in John 8.12, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So are you walking in the light of Jesus Christ this morning? That's what the gospel does. Takes you away from darkness, opens your eyes, allows you to see the light of Jesus Christ. The second thing the gospel does that we ought to reverberate, number two, it releases you from the power of Satan to God. So it says there that they're turning from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to to God. Only the gospel proclaimed and then procured in your heart can truly set you free from the bondage to sin and to Satan. And you know this from Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were following the prince of the power of the air. We were sons of disobedience. So we were enslaved to our sin and to the devil. And yet, Ephesians 2.4 says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. That's what the gospel does. You feel like you're under the power of the evil one? You know, people in our culture talk about, well, I have my demons. You can be set free. You can be set free today because that's what the gospel does. He can make you alive together with Christ. This is the mercy of God. Another effect of the gospel, number three, it remits sins. It remits sins. Receiving the forgiveness of sins, it says here that, uh, verse 18, it says, um, from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Again, it goes without saying, but the receiving of forgiveness of sins is something that is promised to every believer, right? The, the blessed result of salvation. Paul wrote in Romans 4, 7, blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, Peter taught in Acts 5.31 that Israel could receive the forgiveness of their sins if they would repent. And then the fourth effect of the gospel is at the end of verse 18, it restores a lost inheritance. It restores a lost inheritance. The end of 18, a place, so after the forgiveness of sins, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This final gospel blessing has also been described by Peter as an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will never fade away. Reserved in heaven for you, that that inheritance is the riches of Christ in heaven forever. And Paul commented on the same inheritance in Ephesians. Uh, excuse me, to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20:32, when he says, "I commend you to God and to the word of His grace, which He is able to build you up and give you an inheritance." among all those who are sanctified. So in our passage so far, we have seen that Paul's dynamic testimony provides powerful evidence of Christ's resurrection. And this is especially evident because Paul had formerly been such a hostile and violent opponent to the Christian faith. Before his conversion, Paul had not been seeking to discover whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. Neither was he persuaded by hearing from other Christians. Paul didn't talk to Christians. He arrested them and sought their imprisonment and execution. It was only the direct, miraculous, supernatural intervention of the risen, living Jesus himself that radically transformed Paul's life. What about you this morning? It's not about a formula. It's about faith in Jesus. It's not about a methodology. It's about a theology in the resurrection. And it's not about just doing more and trying harder on your own. It's about resting in the finished work of the cross. That is what radically transforms our lives. Every Christian is living evidence of the fact that God changes lives. There are men and women everywhere who are living proofs of Christ's Recreating life transforming power. And so, are we prepared then? That's true. If we've been completely made new, are we prepared then to have a church full of people who were once raging in their fury, who were once sexually immoral, adulterers, drunkards, and swindlers? Are we prepared to acknowledge that this is what we ourselves once were, but we are no longer? And it's all by grace. Or do we just want churches full of people who are properly put together, fairly acceptable individuals who really believe they have no need of Jesus? Jesus saves and Jesus transforms. And by faith, you are what you uh, are by the grace of God. Right? You, not, you, you are not what you were, you are what you are by the grace of God. And you can say that today and next month and next year. Is there anyone today that you think seems like to you, is too steeped in sin to to ever come to Christ. If you know somebody like that, pray for divine transformation. What part of your own life feels too resistant to ever change? Pray for divine transformation. You cannot change anyone, including yourself, but Christ is powerful and fully capable to do what you and I could never do. So let me ask you, are you, take home section, are you radically different? Are you radically different today than you were before you came to Christ? In what ways are you different? Number two, has God interrupted your life, knocked you off your feet and shown you the light of Christ? If so, how did you respond? Christianity, again, it's not like adding a little bit of Jesus to what you're doing, and you just keep doing what you're doing. It's got to alter your life completely. Number three, what mission field has God appointed you to? What mission field has he appointed you to? And are you faithfully reverberating that gospel message of Acts 26, 18, that could be your verse. That could be your prayer. Four things the gospel does. Let me tell it to somebody this week. Let's pray together. Father, thankful for the time we've had in your word. Thankful for the the testimony of, of Paul. We're thankful for the resurrection, a truth that none of us can deny, and yet we also know that our lives are living proof that that resurrection truth radically transforms lives. God, I pray that you would continue to allow us to see and appreciate that radical transformation that we can read about in others. I just pray what happen in each one of us. Pray that there be anybody here this morning that's never truly bowed the knee, confessed their sin, turned from darkness to light, that you would shine the light of Christ in that heart this very day. Pray that you would help all of us who are born again to walk in the light of Jesus, to be radically transformed, to not be who we were yesterday, or even who we were when we walked in this morning, that we would be different, continually being changed and renewed day by day in the spirit of our minds as we look to the risen Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen.